Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Alvar Moma of Xdare, a sustainable brand providing wallets, bags, and accessories that save you time. Listen as Alvar shares stories from his upbringing in the Netherlands, with now creating a very innovative company with Xdare. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Alvar Moma of Xdare. Alvar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Cameron. Appreciate it. Of course. I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? So I grew up moving around a lot. We moved around every five years. So uh, I was born in Amsterdam and very soon after that, we moved to Tokyo. Mm. Uh, stayed there for about three years, then moved to Milan and five years later, moved back to Japan, to Yokohama. Um, and then we stayed there for five years and moved to Barcelona. And then I finished high school. So I decided to do one gap year. Um, I signed up for this Fulbright scholarship in the US, uh, stayed there, then moved back to the Netherlands to start studying there. And then after that, did internships in Hong Kong and Singapore. So mm. my whole life, I've been moving around. Um, yeah. I feel like this has definitely opened up my eyes to new cultures and maybe more flexible in business. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been a, it's been a lot of up and down. Wow. I'm curious, what were some of your aspirations at a young age, um, before school, kind of a, the early years, what did your parents do kind of stuff like that? What did you aspire to do? Yeah. So I, I remember my seeing my dad go to work, uh, very early and come back quite late every day. Mm. Um, and that definitely sparked something inside of me. Uh, my dad was working for Heineken. So he was definitely in the corporate world and he did that most of his life. Mm. And me as a, as, as his oldest son, I, I always aspired to be like him. And I, I really did. I uh, think it was super cool that he was leading this huge Dutch beer brand in so many different countries. Mm. So from that, I did get a lot of drive and started doing these small side hustles as a kid. I was always working. I was always trying to find a way to make an extra buck. Mm. Uh, you know, whether it was selling stuff on markets or starting small at school. Yep. Um, so yeah, it started quite young for me. I love it. So going into education, uh, where did you end up going to school? I know you bounced around a few times. So where was like your grade school years before college, for example? Yeah. So most of my grade school years were in Japan and in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. I did uh, IB, International Baccalaureate which was the best option for me because I was a Dutch speaking kid. I needed to learn English and have an education that was internationally recognized. Yeah. Uh, very happy I chose for that one. It brought me a lot of new connections and, and uh, it was definitely a good upbringing for me. Mm -hmm. Right after that, I was done at the age of 17 uh, high school and I, I, I've always had a baby face. So I was like, I need to grow up a little <laughs> before I start studying in the Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> and I decided to do that Fulbright scholarship in the US. So signed up for it, uh, did five different interviews, wrote like this motivation letter. Uh, took about, a, yeah, I think six months. And then I got a letter in the mail that I got the scholarship, which was insane and really exciting because then I got to do one year in the US. Mm. And I'd always dreamt of living in the USA. Uh, before that, I'd only visited, but 
I'd seen like all the typical American Pie movies and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah. I need experiences, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so right after that Fulbright scholarship, I did decide not to continue in the U.S. but to go back to the Netherlands to go back to my roots. Studied IBA, international business, uh, at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Uh, and in the second year of my bachelor degree there, I started Exeter. So um, I was working quite at quite a young age. I would say at the age of 22, wow. uh, we launched a company and I just went into full, full-time working mode. Wow. Uh, I did finish my bachelor degree, but uh, after that, I decided not to go for a master, but do more practical stuff like a growth hacking course, uh, stuff like that. Yep. Wow, that it's incredible starting so young, um, Exeter. I'm curious, did you have any jobs before this or any internships or any experience like that? Yeah, I, I uh, actually started out working at a beach bar, like beach club-ish restaurant for five years while mm -hmm. I was in high school. And uh, I started out washing dishes and slowly was allowed to like bring out food to people. And then I was allowed to take orders all the way up to a management role. And that was... The, the beginnings of my working uh, motivation, I think. I think that's where everything started for me. Yeah. Uh, because those were long days. Those were like 12-hour days in the, in the sun, like running around. So yeah. I remember that being intense, but also very fun to earn your own money. For sure. Uh, after that, when I started studying, so I did my first official internship at a multinational company in Hong Kong mm. when I was 21. And uh, this was exciting because it was like I got to go to work in a suit every day in a new city. Uh, the company was called Noble Group, a huge commodity trading firm, mm. uh, one of the biggest out there. But I realized after week two that I hated finance and it was definitely not for me. So yeah. I decided that it was a super great like working experience, learning how to work in a big corporate, but definitely not for me. For and sure. then right after that, um, I coincidentally ran into my future business partner, uh, Richard, who has had his own co consulting firm in Singapore, mm -hmm. in IT. And so uh, he said, okay, you want to come do an internship in my firm for six months? And I pitched him the idea for Exeter. And on the spot, he was like, I'm down. Let's do wow. it. So I love it. So if you can explain to the listeners, I know Exeter, especially, you're taking an approach to kind of um, bypass the typical trifold wallet. So... What was that pitch like? What was in your mind when you went to your co-founder then to pitch this idea? What did you want to solve? So this was about seven years ago. I was living in Hong Kong. I was 21 years old and I had already brainstormed some business ideas with another friend of mine, Rick, who was also my co-founder. Yep. And when I was living in Hong Kong, I realized that people were already paying with QR codes on the market. And for example, Apple Pay didn't exist yet, not in Europe or in America. Yeah. And I started, we started asking ourselves the question, why are people still carrying these fat bifold wallets? Like mm. it's the 21st century, phones have touch screens now, why are we still wearing these big fat wallets? And there was no modern wallet on the market whatsoever. So we thought, okay, this is our opportunity. We need to jump on this. We were big fans of Kickstarter. We looked at what campaigns existed already. There was no wallets with trackers whatsoever. Mm. And uh, that's obviously the biggest issue when we started asking around, what's the number one issue with wallets? Losing them. Yeah. So we used that opportunity, jumped on it, started designing, drawing stuff out. And uh, that's when I pitched the next generation wallet to Richard as well in Singapore. Mm. So just for background, what was the background that Richard had and also your co-founder, Rick? Out of curiosity, what, what roles did they play in this 
uh, kind of launch? So Richard was, it, Richard is about 20, 25 years older than we are. Um, okay. He's in his mid forties and we are in our end twenties. So the first piece of experience was just life ex experience. He had founded a couple of businesses before he knew how to uh, do all the legal stuff and he's also a coder. So mm. he knows how to build websites and that's probably one of the biggest assets that he brought in for us over the years. Yeah. Because uh, that's one of the main issues for e-commerce startups is they need to start working with agencies that are super expensive. It takes a lot of time. And we were extremely nimble and flexible and quick with building our stuff. Yeah. Uh, Rick, the other guy, he's my age. He's 30 now. And he was also studying at the same university as I did. I met him on my Fulbright scholarship in the US. Mm. We were the only two Dutchies at the whole college. So we clicked <laughs> right away. Yeah. And we had always already brainstormed about business ideas. So that's why we were together. And his background is he's very focused on the details usually. So he did do a business study, but he was very focused on like user experience, uh, product design, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. he started focusing on the product design part. I did all the marketing and sales. Richard did IT. And that's wow. how we started as the three of us. I love it. And though, uh, or before launch, what did that sourcing look like for you guys? Where were you sourcing? What did the designing prototyping look like uh, when you're trying to figure out what this design was going to ultimately look like? Yeah, it was extremely early stage stuff. Like when I look back, even at our Kickstarter campaign, I often ask myself, like, how do we get away with this? How did we go live with such a, yeah, amateur campaign. At least that's the way I look at it now. But um, yeah. I remember my the first time I had the idea, I was drawing it out while at work in Hong Kong in one of those big towers, drawing it out in a sketchbook and just drawing out what the wallet would look like, what the main features would be. Uh, so it was it started with drawings. Then we went to the market in, in Hong Kong and we bought leather and we bought like these metal hardware pieces to just stitch it together. Yeah. Uh, so the first sample was made by ourselves. And then we started reaching out to official sampling companies in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands to see if anyone would help us build our first sample for a low budget. Mm. We reached out to about 28 companies in, in the Netherlands and only one of them wanted to work with us. So that was like rejection after rejection, which was very painful for us because for it sure. almost seemed like our idea was, wasn't going to work because no one believed in it. Yeah. Uh, but I still think uh, till today that all those companies saw our faces, you know, we looked super young, no business experience, and mm -hmm. they didn't, didn't believe in us. Uh, and that one company did, which was incredible because they were part of selling big yeah. from the very start. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far around Oliver's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Henry Griffiths. Henry Griffiths offers premium custom fit golf clubs. Yes, custom fit. Not a sales pitch when you go to a store and they throw you ready-to-play golf clubs, but custom-tailored clubs. They take pride in their clubs being custom-tailored to your gameplay, size, swing speed, and much more. As someone who really enjoys golfing on my free time, I love playing with my Henry Griffiths clubs because they're exactly tailored to the way I play. You simply go to their website, see their locator, and find different fitters in your region that they partner with, and you'll be ready to go with your own set of clubs. So, whether you golf a couple times a week or once a month, Henry Griffiths has clubs for your exact gameplay. I highly recommend checking out Henry Griffiths, so make sure to check them out at henry-griffiths.com. The link's in this description, and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. Out of curiosity, what then going into the Kickstarter campaign and the official launch, 
what did that campaign offer? What did that look like for you guys? And what kind of size were you trying to shoot for uh, campaign-wise? Yeah, so I remember uh, we followed the whole playbook. So we, we benchmarked all the bigger campaigns. That's mm-hmm. how we run our business for the first three years, just benchmarking what other big campaigns are doing. Yep. We looked at the whole structure, you know, like making sure there's enough social proof at the top of the page, making sure your rewards are as simple as possible so the customer can simply choose. Yep. Um, making sure that your video encompasses everything you need to explain about your campaign and that it grabs the customer with a hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just the entire structure of like the, the timeline, the features, the story about the team. We really just put like the 10 biggest Kickstarter campaigns next to each other and made this playbook for it and, and built our own campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after that, we, we had to start designing it and, you know, go live with it. So we looked at who are the partners that these guys worked with. We even reached out to the campaigns themselves mm. to chat with them. And there was actually a handful of campaigns that were open to talk to us, wow. which was super cool because it, they gave us all these amazing insights in terms of targets. I remember thinking like, okay, we're going to set this target at 10K because it's a realistic it's a hit, but we need more to make that this happen. Yeah. Uh, and I remember thinking in bed like, okay, if we can, if we can hit 50K, like we would, we'll be, we'll be winners, you know, we'll be huge. And then yeah. overnight we hit 50K. And then in those 40 days we hit uh, 350K, wow. which was unreal for us. It's incredible. How did you end up handling that inventory once that came in um, for those wallets for those that first run through? Yeah, so that I would say inventory was our biggest issue for the first two years. Uh, yeah. We were always out of stock. Uh, we always had shipping issues. Uh, we wanted to do the whole world because we were like, okay, we might as well ship to everyone. But we did that from one warehouse in Hong Kong. So mm. you, you can imagine all the problems that arise from that. Yeah. Uh, the only positive part about it is that the warehouse was super close to the factory, so we didn't have any cargo issues. Yeah. But I remember just like we sent hundreds of double packages to people. Um, we shipped uh, to wrong, like the wrong address. A lot of people didn't even receive their package. What we had to resend it later. So that was a big issue. We had no experience there, and our fulfillment company that we were working with was not on the ball. Mm. Uh, so very soon after that, one of our first hires was a supply chain guy. We started streamlining everything. Mm. Uh, and from there on, we realized, okay, let's focus on the markets that work for us. Uh, the U S was huge for us. So we just put our first warehouse in the U S closed yeah. down Hong Kong, started focusing on the U S because that's where the money was at for us. Yep. I love it. I'm curious then, uh, keeping that demand rolling forward. What, what was the marketing looking like for you guys? What worked, especially for the wallets that, really is a huge differentiation is tracking and it's not focused on trifold. I'm curious what you guys used. Yeah. So, um, we were very quick to the game with performance marketing. Mm-hmm. I would say, uh, that has always been our, our driving force. We, um, the early years we worked with agencies that didn't really know how to scale, but mm-hmm. because we were just doing Facebook ads at all, we already had, you know, one step, ahead of on on most competition uh content has been a big one for us since day one we've been super big on on creating our content in-house and creating a lot of content to test so i would say um making sure that we stayed at the forefront of performance marketing testing a ton of content and then also having the brand feel with our in-house content look Mm. premium and and up to standard 
for sure. Um, not soon after that, we did start working with creators and influencers a lot, which yeah. uh, which helped feed the funnel. Um, yeah. So we started working with YouTube creators and because those videos are linkable, we were able yeah. to track your revenue. We knew what worked and what didn't. So we could scale oh. that platform as well. And yeah. all of that we could do in-house. So uh, we really started out with everything in-house, like a bunch of interns, quite a big team for such a small company. Yeah. Uh, and just started scaling that. Yeah, I would love to hear what were those first vital hires for you? Would you say, and you mentioned interns, especially for like influencer seeding. Um, what yeah. did that first initial team look like kind of expanding within that next year to two? So our most important hire, also our very first hire was customer service. Uh, you won't believe the stuff that comes at you on Kickstarter yeah. because everything is public. You know, every comment on your campaign is public. Like it's almost like hand handling a PR crisis yeah. for a multinational company. Like there's always someone whining about something. And so we just, at some point we couldn't sleep anymore because of all the comments and messages coming in and we yeah. were doing everything ourselves. So just the three of us like responding to everything. So we realized, okay, we need someone to take this off our hands to just full-time manage customer service so we can make sure that the products get to the customers, which was the next biggest issue. Yeah. After that, we hired a first operations slash supply chain manager. He started streamlining uh, the shipments, making sure the cargo came to the 3PL on time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that helped a lot as well because that allowed me to take a step back and focus on the brand and focus yeah. on the marketing. Uh, and then not soon after that, we hired an army of interns I would say six people and they were all doing creator outreach. So literally wow. all day long, reaching out to YouTubers and sending out packages, seeding, but also paid collaborations. We started looking at like the larger deals at some point for us, like a, a few thousand dollars was like a huge deal. Yeah. And so we, we reached out to like the bigger influencers on YouTube who did gifting during Q4. Mm. And every time one of those posted a video, if they were good, that was like a mini Black Friday for us. I love so, it. That was definitely the next step after that. And then I would say in modern times, if I talk mm -hmm. about the past three years, yep. our biggest move has been pulling our performance marketing team in-house mm. and our whole content creation team in-house, which just blew like our performance out of the water. We just started scaling so much harder. Mm. Amazing. Talking into product expansion then. So you guys had this flagship wallet. How long did you have that wallet before you expanded into a couple other variety of wallets? And I also see that you have bags and accessories. So can you explain that expansion? Yeah, so we we had four colors of two wallet models mm -hmm. for three years. We just okay. did that for three years. The website was so simple. And sometimes today, we wonder what would it be like if we had such a simple website again? Would it convert better than what we have now? Because now mm -hmm. everything is more complicated, more clunky. The website slows down because of all the imagery. That's a discussion we often have. Like, should we not test our current website against a super simple website? Yeah. So after year three, we realized, okay, people are only buying one wallet. They may buy a second as a gift, but our returning customer rate is quite low. How can we get our customers to come back? We need to create um, products that are great add-ons, uh, complementary to our wallets. So we started re started designing key cases that like had a similar design to the wallet, like similar materials mm -hmm. that they matched better together so that people would use a key case and a wallet. Then we started creating all these add-on products. Uh, so like tool cards, cash clips, mm. um, you know, key trackers, other types of tracker cards. 
And then we realized, okay, now people are really coming back to like complete the whole ecosystem. And mm. the next step for us is creating travel gear. So mm. bigger products. Yeah, I love it. With uh, the, that expansion, I'm curious to hear, I can kind of get an idea, but what is the main demographic, would you say, if you're your consumer? Main demographic is definitely North, North America, 25 to 35, um, male, tech-savvy, likes online shopping, interested in sports, and interested in outdoors activities. Yep. Love the main uh, one for us. Amazing. I would love to hear also, lastly, kind of closing up here soon, um, but what would you say differentiates Xterra from just not, not only not being trifled, but what would you say differentiates from other wallet companies and similar accessories? So we, we have, by many press outlets, been named the biggest smart wallet brand out there. It's because, you know, smart is kind of a gimmicky word, but we do only release products that have innovative features. Yeah. We would never just release a standard bifold wallet without any features in it. It needs to have something because that's how we started. You know, we wanted to create the next generation wallet, yeah. the future of carry. So why would we now go back to the old old school stuff? Yeah. And what we really do different to our competition is there's either, either tech involved or a smart feature that no one else has mm. uh, that makes the product modern. I love it. So I like to conclude each episode with this. Uh, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? The one that I usually give, um, because the people often forget, people when people are launching companies, they think, okay, I have a new idea, so I need to reinvent the wheel. Mm. The whole reason Exter is here today is because we benchmarked what other brands were doing, the best in the business. And we still do this today. Like when we look at website design, we go to the top 10 Shopify web shops and we look at how they're doing it because yeah. they have bigger teams, they have more resources to A-B test. So might as well look at that. Yeah. Uh, so my main tip is benchmark what the best in the business are doing and try not to waste time on reinventing mm. the wheel yourself. I love that. Amazing. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Xtare at xtare.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.